Okay, we are in Habakkuk, and this is a really short book. I love Habakkuk. This is a book that when I first studied it as a young believer, completely changed my life um, as I really got a, a dose of God's sovereignty and um, a broader scope of what he is doing in history as, as God. And I hope you read through it, but if you didn't, you know what? We're going to read through it. We're going to read through those first two chapters before we do chapter three because they're not that long. And there's some remarkable um, verses in here that even if you're not familiar with the book, I think when we read it, you'll see that you are familiar with the book, that you're familiar with, with these verses. And, and they're underlinable. That's what I call the underlinable verses. And I was thinking about that on the way here. I don't know if I've ever told you all this story or not, but when we... When we first moved here, we used to go to First Baptist Church many moons ago, and there was a pastor there, Rodney McLaughlin, and he was telling me one day how um, whenever he was asked to preach a funeral, he always asked for the person's Bible, because he said, I can tell a lot about that individual by what they underlined and what kind of notes they had in their Bible. Now, he also said a woman's Bible was like a purse. There was everything in it, and uh, and men's did not have that in there. But here's what was funny. As I came home one day, and Vance had his Bible out. Now, this is a man who never puts a mark in a book, ever. Never puts a mark in a book. And, and if he were doing this course with homework, you might see, for the whole lesson, a sentence written down. It's just up here. But he's sitting there with this pen, marking all over his Bible. And I said, what, what are you doing? And he goes, well, I figured I better mark up some of my favorite verses in the Bible so if I die, Rodney knows what's important to me. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So funny. Well, he did that, and he's had several new Bibles since, and he's never marked in them. They're just clean. They're clean slates. There's nothing in them. It would do you no he just, he just doesn't mark. It'd do you no good to find out what's in his head by looking at his books. But anyway, so turn to Habakkuk 1, and let's, I'm, let's read, and I'll point a few things out. Oh, Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you, for, cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, and strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Now, he's living in a time when the Israelites are, are consistently and continually disobedient to the covenant. And he's overlapping some with, with Jeremiah, Nahum, Zephaniah. And if you've read Jeremiah, you know what a lot of the abuses of the people were and the type of, of perversion of justice and the social ills that were happening because they were not fearing God and they were not living according to the terms of the covenant. And he's looking out on this and saying, how long are you going to let this go on? What's going on in the nation? And God answers, be careful what you ask. It's okay to ask. It's okay to question him, but you better be ready for the answer when, when, he does, look, when he does answer. I love this verse. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astonished, for I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. If we stopped right there, I think he'd say, great, what are you going to do? I'm excited to know. For behold, 
I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. That does not sound very pleasant, does it? These are very, these are, this is an evil nation that will come in and just strip them bare and destroy their cities and destroy their land and take them away as slaves and as captives. And Habakkuk says, paraphrase, you've got to be kidding. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You are of pure eyes in the sea evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Do you see him struggling with his theology here? This is, you are, you are coming against everything I know about you. Why would you use a nation that is much more wicked than, uh, than Israel to, to come in and use as your instrument of adjustment? I don't understand how you could do that. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net, makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercifully killing nations forever? Will you allow this to go on forever? How long? But look what he says. Look what he says. This is an underlinable verse. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. I'm going to sit still and wait to hear what God has to say. And the Lord answered, write the vision, make it plain on the tablets so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision waits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not right within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Underlinable verse. Where have we seen that before? Romans, Galatians, my righteous one shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. But now look at the woes. Notice all these woes he's going to pronounce upon the Chaldeans because he is going to use them as his instruments, but he will also judge them one day as well in his due time according to his um, prerogative in his providence. Shall not all these take up their taunt song against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, 
Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then, they will be, then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnants of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and the violence to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire, and the nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour your, out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there's no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him underlinable verse, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. And so Habakkuk prays in chapter three, and this is what you all studied this week, his prayer. O Lord, I've heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear in the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague, followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting waves. I saw the tents of cushion and affliction, and the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and reeved. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and the moon stood still in their place, at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles. 
My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones, and my legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will wait, quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. Though the fig fig trees should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock is cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Praise God. Is that not absolutely a beautiful book? We could stop right there, but of course we won't. So um, wonderful, wonderful study, and I hope you really enjoyed it this week. So let's unpack it. Let's talk about it, um, this chapter. When you looked at it and you began to um, pull it apart, and you saw some key words and you saw some key phrases and you, you kind of, you try to get together in your head, what, what, is the, what is the main theme? What is it that I need to know from this chapter? What were some of the things you discovered as you were working on your observations? What stood out? Yes, June. Trusting God in all circumstances. Okay. Who is key? Who, who is the key person in this chapter? It's God. Actually, God's always key, y'all. Do you know that? Yes. It is, it is all about him, really, isn't it? It is about Habakkuk. It is about us. But it's really about him more than anything. And you know how we, I've put up here, not every week, but pretty much every week, this semester, that it's, that it's his story. It's God's story. It's, it's his redemptive plan. And we fall, we fall all under this. It's all about him. It's all about his plan. It's about what he is doing. It is about his glory. He is the main character. We are but sub-characters. And we get a part in that story. We get a... Um, piece of his redemptive plan, and we are players in it, and we are recipients of it, but it is all about him. And I think that really comes out in, in Habakkuk, in the book of Habakkuk. Okay, what are some other things you uh, observed as you spent time on this, in this chapter? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's why I gave you the hint in the question. Did you notice I did? Look at the verbs. That, that is a great observational tool to look at the verbs. In some passages, it's not going to mean as much. In this one, it's everything. And, she, and Annette is exactly right. You do look at them. You know, he, um, before him went pestilence. He veiled his power, his splendor covered the heavens. Look at six. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. The eternal mountains were scattered. Everlasting hills sank low. Uh, Down in nine, you stripped, calling, split, reaved, swept on, gave forth. 
marched, thrashed the nations, all of those very active verbs that really point to his splendor, his majesty, his power, his omnipotence. Yes, yes. What else? What about some key phrases that were only used one time, but they really unpacked the message of this chapter? Did you pick them out? Could you see them? Oh, there's a key word that comes up a lot. There's a key word that comes up several times that is really going to help us understand what he's doing. Did you see it? Used in 13. Used. Yes. Yes, salvation. So you have all these very descriptive verbs that point to the power of God. And if you don't get why salvation is in there, we'll get it in a minute. Okay, what else? I will rejoice. Look at this. I yet I will rejoice. Mm -hmm. What else is Habakkuk doing? I will quietly wait. Did you see that? His little I wills. I will quietly wait. And he also says, I will take joy. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Yeah, the Lord is my strength. So I can quietly wait on him. I can rejoice in him. I can take joy in him because he is the one that will make my feet like the feet of a deer and put my feet, hind's feet in high places. Exactly. Okay. So as we move on, Think about Habakkuk and what he has just learned. What do you think is going through his head? If you go back, we read chapters 1 and 2. He is asked about why is God delaying his judgment on the people. And God says, I'm, I'm not delaying it. I'm about to do something great and mighty. And I'm going to bring in the Chaldeans to take over. What, it, what, do you, what is... Habakkuk's response to what does that do to him when he gets word of that? He cannot figure out why God would choose someone worse than them. Can you can you imagine a modern day example of that? What would be a modern day? Did did anybody think about that? We are a blessed nation. We're God's people. We're God's people, and yet, so get careful. 
Right, right. Can you think of even a worse example? I thought of an even worse example. It's in the news all the time. North Korea nuclear. Not even that. ISIS. ISIS. Have you read some of what ISIS has done in the countries that have taken over? The brutalization of the women and the children, and they kill anyone who does not agree with them. They, 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 if you've seen the news when they, when they pushed ISIS out of, what city was that in Iraq? I mean, the city is just, le Mosul, is that, was it Mosul? Leveled. There's nothing left. It, the city is decimated. It's just rubble and ruins. And, you know, the people can't even make a living there. That, that would be a real, to me, that's more of a picture of, of this than anything. I mean, those are great examples. What if Russia came in, you know, North Korea nuked us, or especially Hitler. When, when you, I'm a big fan of um, World War II. That's a period of, time, of history that fascinates me. And um, the way that he would go in to these countries, he didn't so much strip the land, but, but the people especially the Jews or anybody that wasn't of great Aryan stock. You know, those, those people were killed. But imagine if in our cry as believers we said, God, how long are you going to let America continue down the path it is? How far must America go in its redefinition of gender and sexuality and marriage before you step in and do something? And he said, look, I'm about to do something. I'm bringing ISIS in. I'm going to let ISIS decimate your land. I mean, that, that to me is the closest modern-day par parallel, and I would be terrified. Norma, you had something you wanted to say. Chaldeans and the Babylonians are the same thing. That's a little confusing. We don't have Muslims yet. Yeah. Right. I thought Babylon was more, was it, I thought it was more Turkey. Was, is it not Turkey? What was that? I thought Babylon was Turkey. No, no, Turkey would be uh, complete opposite direction. It's the same as Baghdad, but it would be Okay, okay, you're right. Well, you have, I mean, it's kind of like, it's, it's uh, yeah, you're, you're describing
but it is in what we would now modern day think of as the Babylonian regime, North Iraq, and the Persian Empire in North Iran. So Persians today, I mean, I have a buddy of mine who is... Yeah, some of them are Persian. Yeah, mm -hmm. he, he's totally a Persian. Mm -hmm. He loves to call himself Persian, but he's Iranian. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But Islam doesn't come about like the whole. Yeah, when does it come that, about? Yeah, all of that does not come about until 680. Mm -hmm. So this is 1200 years before. Yeah, they're idolaters. They worship different gods. I couldn't tell you off the top of my head which gods they worship, but there's not. Mohammed. Yeah, he's right. Muhammad hadn't even shown on the scene it's like, yet. It's, it's, a, it's a little bit like the guy who's describing like people in England as America. Mm -hmm. Like Richard, isn't he an American? It's good to get a map, to look in your maps in the back of your Bible, or to Google and see when we're talking about these countries where they were. Um, and, and, and don't exactly what Jim's saying, you can't equate them with modern day um, um, Iran and Iraq, but you can see where they were and where they were coming from, these ancient um, civilizations. And it's really kind of behooves you a little bit to read up about the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and the Persians because they play heavily in the history of the Old Testament and in the plan of God working out what he's doing. I mean, when I took my, my Gospel Acts class in, in seminary, the whole first part of the book, the first several chapters, were just history. I mean, that's where we started first, was, was, was the history from um, oh, past this. Well, we went through the, Babylonian, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, Alexander the Great, because it was during these time periods that certain things began to develop that was going to define and um, help you understand why the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Jews thought the way they did and why they were the way they were when Jesus showed up and why they were looking for something other than Jesus. So we started there on that history. And if you, you're reading the Old Testament, especially the prophets, you're hearing the Assyrians and the Persians and the uh, Babylonians mention all the time. So Google them and read about them. Who were these people? And, and how long were they in power? And at what points in history were they in power? Does that make sense? And kind of what was the geography? Where, you know, where, is, where is Israel? Where is Egypt? Where is Babylon? Where is Assyria? Where is Persia? Where are these places? Because they're, geographically, they're still on the map. They just have different names now. Okay. Okay, where were we? That before her question. I've totally lost it. It was a good question though, Norma. Okay. So Habakkuk asks God something. What does he ask him? First of all, he's he's afraid, isn't he? He is he is very at the news of this coming, he is not only afraid. Because he has heard. Now remember in the timeline of Habakkuk. Habakkuk had already seen um, the Assyrians. Judah had already seen the Assyrians come in and take over the northern kingdom. So they, they knew well about that. That was in 722 BC. So they heard the stories of that. They had seen how the northern ten tribes had been decimated 
by the Assyrians, and we talked last week about the Assyrians and how incredibly wicked and evil they were and the horrible atrocities that they committed upon people that they came in and conquered. And the Babylonians are really not any better. So he, you would ha there would have to be a sense of fear. I would have fear if God said, I'm bringing ISIS in, and he is going to sweep through the land. I would be very fearful for myself as a Christian woman and what, what they would do to me and what would happen to my livelihood, which would be taken away, and how would I eat, all of these questions that would come into mind. And, and how long is this going to last? And how bad is it going to get? These are just normal human responses to get that kind of news. Of course he's afraid. And he says it in here that he is afraid and that he trembles at what is about to happen. And yet he, he asks, he says in verse 2, when he says, I heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear? But he asks, he makes a request of God. What does he request of God? Remember your mercy. In your wrath, please remember your mercy. He asked something else too. Did you pick up on it? Look what he says. I've heard the report of you and your work, O Lord. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. I have heard of your work. What is he referring to? I have heard of your work. And what he has done in the past. Because I've heard of your great power. I have heard of the mighty deeds that you have done on our behalf. That I didn't personally experience it, but as, but as a good Jew, I have been retold these stories over and over and over again of the mighty deeds that you have committed and you have done on our on my behalf, on our behalf as a nation. Yes, Lynn? How many years back was that? A long time. Do you know? 800 years? Okay. Eight hundred. It's a long oral history. That puts it in perspective. You know, you're eight hundred years. But again, you look at the size of the Bible, and if you're not paying attention to the history, because oh, we're talking about that in our current time. It's you know, time is long. Yeah. What? When did you say Habakkuk is six hundred? About six. Six hundred. Okay, and they fell to the Babylonians in five eighty six. So there's kind of your timeline, and you and John was asking earlier because he was getting, and some of y'all may get confused because it can get confusing. And this is where it helps. I love what's happening on Sunday morning. The timeline. This is where it helps to 
Google a timeline, try to figure out a timeline, make yourself a timeline, just keep it, tuck it in your Bible of, of you know, when some of these people were. Because like I said, in the time of, of Habakkuk, he's overlapping with Jeremiah and Nahum. Who did I say? Zephaniah. The Babylonians come in. Daniel, that we were talking about someday, Daniel is over here. Because he is living his life under the captivity of the Babylonians. Do you see how that's playing now? Habakkuk, Daniel comes first in your Bible and then Habakkuk. But chronologically, in time and history, it's Habakkuk, then Daniel. And that, that's where it's easy to get confused. And sometimes you just need to map this out. And I liked what, if anybody was here last night with... Um, What's his name? Ryan V. He said, he said it's, it's good to, re, to memorize some dates, to know some dates. 586 B.C., 722 B.C., 70 A.D. when the temple is destroyed. You know, all these, these big markers of dates when God is really doing something big in the history of the world from beginning to end. So this is where, this is where we are. That makes sense? Questions? Everybody get it? Okay, did that help? Okay, good. So in, in wrath, remember, remember mercy and revive your work that you've done in the past. And he gives this description of God here that is incredible. We've looked at some of those verbs and we see his power and his might, his majesty, his splendor. There's so much about God here. And a lot of commentators think that some of these descriptions he's referring to historical, actual historical events, or there's, there's allusions to historical events where he says, revive your work. I've heard of your work, what Lynn said, clear back here in the Exodus. And I gave you some cross-references, just a sampling of things that had happened. And whether he's exactly referring to that or not, he, he can be recalling those things. And you do see God's mighty power in his omnipotence happen in these events. You, you scan through Exodus 7 through 12. What, what happened in Exodus 7 through 12? Hmm? Yeah, Moses leads, God appoints Moses to lead all of the people. What did you say, Glenda? The plagues, the ten plagues that God brought down upon Egypt. What was that final plague? The Passover. The Passover, where they were told, where they were told, sacrifice this lamb, put the blood on the lintel of your house. And when the angel of death comes through, it, if he sees that blood, he will pass over, and your firstborn male will not be killed. And as when all these firstborn males were killed, that Pharaoh finally said, go, take what you want, just get out of here. I've had enough. He lets them go. When they go and they get into the wilderness, into the desert of Sinai, the Egyptians change their mind and decide to pursue them. What happens that shows forth God's great, mighty power and his creative ability to speak, to stand and measure, to decide how he will use his creation and have power over it? What happened when they're out there and the Egyptians are coming after them? Yeah, part of the Red Sea, he told Moses, take your staff and hold it up. 
and, and the waters part and they stay parted and the land dries up and Israel is able to cross through the land. And then as the pursuing Egyptian army comes through, the waters come down and engulf them. And so they pass safely and they are spared recapture by the Egyptians. So you see these mighty acts, these mighty powers of God. In, in the rebellion of Korah, in Numbers, what does God do? These people rebelled against him. What happens to the ground? Did you read that? There is a plague, but first the ground just opens up and they're consumed. Who can do that? God can. Yeah, unless you live in Florida and a sinkhole takes you down. But <laughs> you don't know. That would be a, that would be a similar picture. Joshua, when they are battling against the Amorites, and it's about to get dark, and Joshua prays, and what does he pray? Let the moon and the sun stand still. Did they? Yes, they do. For a whole day, and it says something to the fact that there's never been a day like that. For a whole day, it stands still so that they have daylight and they can defeat the Amorites. So you see God's mighty work, God's mighty power that is displayed forth in the preservation of his people against their enemies and even against their own sins. You know, the rebellion of Korah against their own sin. He, sw- he consumes them whole and brings forth a plague as judgment and punishment for their sin and a purifying, refining act against them. Comments, thoughts? Why is it good? Why is it a good thing to remember past, past acts of God? Why is that? Why did Habakkuk need that? Why do we need it? God is unchanging. Yeah, Norma said it gives us hope, it gives us strength, it gives us courage. What else? Okay. Yes. Did you hear, Debbie? It helps us remember it's not about us, that it's about him, that we get our eyes so focused on ourselves that we lose sight of the fact. I had a really good quote about that, and I don't know what I did with that piece of paper. Yes, he is. He is still working on his plan. Do you remember when we did Ecclesiastes and I shared some of those quotes by people I had called? And one of them, she just blew me away when she said, God is as much at work, and I will change her wording. God is as much at work today as when he brought those plagues, when he opened that sea. You know, when he had the sun stand still, we may not see these kinds of mighty acts of, of nature, 
but he is as much at work. He is still at work because the story's not over yet until Jesus returns in judgment and this and the end of this age happens. But even then, he's still at work because he's eternal. So it, it helps us keep our mind focused on that. Going back to something that Debbie said, um, that I had this one quote that said, it's exactly what you're saying, Debbie, it's just worded a little bit differently. Sometimes we get so self-focused that we forget that God is painting on the canvas of world history directing the nations according to his kingdom purposes and glory. That he is painting on a canvas, get that word picture, painting on a canvas, directing the nations, even people, even evil people like what's his name in, in North Korea, even with ice, he, he is still, it's hard, it may be hard for us to accept that, but he is still in control. He is the one that appoints the kings. He is the one that defines the boundaries of the nations. And that's where I'm glad he is God, and I am not, because I don't always understand what he is doing and why he is doing that. Why are those people in North Korea suffering the way that they are? Yes? Yes, exactly. And, and that goes both ways. Because look down in verse 13. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. Now think about that in the context of what he's saying here. I am bringing in this evil people who are going to, they are going to decimate and level Jerusalem. They are going to take down your temple, they are going to care, they're going to kill a lot of you, and the rest of you, they're going to take off and make you slaves, you're going to be your, they're going to, you will be their subjects in Babylon, you will no longer live in the promised land that you've cherished so well, but do you know why I'm doing that? For the salvation of my anointed, why? Because I have got to preserve you, why does he have to preserve them? Why does he have to preserve them? There's several answers to that. There isn't one answer. Why does he have to? Because Jesus is coming through. It is through the tribe of Judah, through the nation of Israel, descendant of David, that Jesus is going to come. He has prophesied this. He has to preserve them. Why else does he need to preserve them? Why does he need to bring this judgment upon them? Because of what? Because of his word, because of his promise that he would, what would you say, Glenda? That is his nature. That is his nature. He made a covenant with these people. Remember the covenant at Sinai? When he said, here is my law. I'm making a covenant with you, and the blood was sprinkled on the altar and the people, and the people said what? All that you say, we will do. We will, be, we will do it, what you command. We will be obedient to it. And what had God done in Deuteronomy? He had laid out his blessings and his curses. If you keep my word and follow my commandments, these are the blessings I will pour out upon you, your families, the nation, and the land. But if you do not, if you continue 
to shake your hand at me, to disobey me, to have a pattern of disobedience, to fail to repent, to worship other gods, to commit these social injustices of, take, of um, not taking care of the poor and the widow, of taking advantage of people, and you continue to live that way, I, I will call you to repent. That's what we see in all the prophets. It's the prophets being sent. You've broken the covenant. This is how you've broken it. Turn to me, and I will not bring this disaster on you, which is what we saw last week he did with Jonah. Turn to me, and I will not bring this disaster upon you. But if you don't turn, then the disaster is I will allow an evil, a nation more evil than you to come in and take over, and I will pull you out of the land. So he is staying faithful to his word because it is, I like what you said, Glenn, it is his nature. It is who he is, and he cannot be anything other than who he is. He is God. So he has to stay true to his word. But the thing I, I really want you to see is he's ha also having to preserve them. And part of preserving them is bringing judgment. Does that make sense? So how is Habakkuk going to live through this? What, what's going to happen? He's very descriptive in this very poetic way about what's going to happen and what his life is going to be like. What is his life going to be like? He is going to remember. He says, I will be joyful in the Lord, and I will rejoice in the Lord my strength. He will remain strong. That, those are words of faith. Faith in spite of his circumstances, what will his circumstances be? Mm -hmm. No food, no shelter, no land. Mm -mm. Did y'all see that? The fig tree will not blossom, no fruit on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields will yield no food. And you know what? If they have a year of yielding no food, it's more likely the next year they will yield no food. It's going to be drought and famine and poverty and enslavement. And the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. So modern day parallel. I, I even challenged you in the homework to write your own what would your own be? Because for us, it's not so much that the fig tree would not blossom. We don't even eat figs here, hardly. But um, go try to find them at the grocery. They're really hard to find. So what, what would be, did anybody do that? Would anybody want to share? What would be your worst fear of what you would, of how awful life could be? Smallpox. Smallpox. Does smallpox overtake us? That's coming from a doctor. Yeah. It's terrible. Die or leave scarred? What are some of our worst fears? Though the stock market crash and all of my investments are now worth nothing, my retirement is gone. I don't know how I'm going to pay my electric bill. I don't know how I'm going to eat because my money is now worthless. Mm-hmm. Lynn kept the cattle part. Though my cows be gone. Mm -hmm. I've read about the depression, the Great Depression. Uh, not enough to be true, but 
We really can. Well, some can. Some are very poor, but yeah. Though like Job, everything I have is taken away from me. Though like Job, my children and my grandchildren die. My, my spouse is killed tomorrow or gets cancer and dies. Everything is taken from me. Though I have no freedom to worship in public and the fear of, of doing so might be in um, jail, my life taken, being locked away. Though because I would worship, which happens in some countries, and they see that I do, the government would just come in and shut off all my utilities for an indeterminate amount of time just to make me suffer. Can you, you just, the, the sky's the limit of what you can think of. Though all these things might befall me, and those are the reality of my circumstances, can you say, honestly, you don't have to answer in here, can you say, though those things would happen, I would still rejoice in the God of my salvation? like Habakkuk, because he's afraid. He is afraid. He is trembling at what is about to happen. And he and he's trembling during the time when you read that. And he waits and trembles, knowing that these woes of chapter 2 will eventually come upon the Babylonians, but in the meantime, he, as part of the righteous remnant, is going to suffer right along with the unrighteous masses. And yet he says, I will rejoice. The question is, can I do that? And how do you do it? How do you do it? How do you get to that point? June, you were going to say something. Yeah. You have to have a lifetime of faith. So I'm going to read you this quote, but I, as I do, think about how do you get to that? How do you get to that point? Because I, I know in a room this larger, somebody's sitting here saying, I'm not there. I'm not there, how do I get there? How do I get from point A to point B? That if everything that I hold dear was stripped from me and my life got that difficult, could I still rejoice in God and have joy in the midst of those circumstances? But C.S. Lewis in his book, The Weight of Glory, he who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. He who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. So is God, is he enough? Is, is he alone enough for you? And if he is not, how do you get a faith like Habakkuk had? And that's my question we will discuss. How do you get a faith like that? How do we get to that point? Habakkuk's circumstances have not changed since the beginning of the book, but there's a change in Habakkuk. Oh, Corey Tim Boom. Yeah, because they hid Jews and they got caught. She and her sister Betsy 
were taken um, to the concentration camps. If you all have not read that book, especially you all younger, The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom, it's a must read. Must read, yeah. They, they, she is amazed. I haven't read that in a number of years. It's kind of on my list to reread. The way she and Betsy had such incredible faith. And even, I remember there's one story where um, the guards sometimes would just come in and harass them, and they didn't. And she was thankful they didn't, and they didn't because they had lice. And she praised God for the lice, because the lice is what kept them out of there and kept them physically safe. Now, I don't know that I could do that. Yeah, but she could, she could see, she had, Corey had this, this greater, this greater picture, and, and that is one way, that is a way, is not, it's just a small way, you want to have more faith, read about these people, I'm, I'm a big proponent of that, read these books about them, one of my absolute favorite books, you can read it in a setting, is called um, Greenleaf and Drought, about some missionaries in China that when the, um, um, Chinese, when the communists were taken over, wouldn't let them out and wouldn't give them their missionary checks. And they were just about near starvation. And they had a little girl, a little bitty, a little toddler girl, and how they survived and how they saw God's hand. Now, they went through some questioning. There were times it was really, really hard. And they were really questioning God, but yet they, their faith was so strengthened. And they would, you know, at the end of the day, really rejoice in who God was and, and have his joy. That, I've reread that book numerous times. Glenda, you were going to make a comment. Um, I think the way that we get spiritual is just by keeping talking scripture. Yes. I mean, over and over and over and over. Mm -hmm. And so when you find your best parlay, the scripture is the first thing that comes into your head. Mm -hmm. Did you hear her? You camp out in the scriptures so that when calamity comes your way, that's what, that's what comes to your head. I read a quote by D.L. Moody that said he used to think the way he got to this point was he prayed for faith and said he, then he realized, it's not, it, yes, we can pray for faith, but it's just digging into the Word of God. It really is. It's having those, those, those verses. It's knowing who God is that I can cling to it and I can hold on to it and have those, those, those ropes that anchor to him of knowing who he is and every facet of his being and his character that I possibly am able to understand this side of eternity and knowing his words and knowing his mighty deeds. I would say even go back and look at how God has worked in your life. If he's worked before, he's continuing. Go back and say, wow, you know, I did go through this hard time back here 10 years ago, and I can see how his hand was in it, where at the time I couldn't see how his hand was in it. So I can trust today, even though I can't see how he is working, he is working. You know, get this in your head. God's redemptive story, his plan, he is painting the canvas for his glory. He is moving everything in the direction that he wants it to go for our benefit, whether it feels like it or looks like it. Prisoners of War. And uh, they, I read some of the stories how that kept them, they were in salt isolation, and all they read was scripture, but they yeah. over and over and over in their hearts right. and their minds and their mm -hmm. perception. Mm -hmm. Evidence, um, evidence not seen, um, 
Darlene Dibler Rose. She was a missionary from, not America, Holland, in um, one of the islands, New Guinea, I believe, when the Japanese came. And she was taken to a Japanese prisoner of war camp. So was her husband. Her husband died. She did not. And for a while, she was in, in like a solitary and had nothing. And um, she was starving. But it was it's the scripture she had memorized that held her, that held her there. Yeah. And, and a recognition, again, of God's provision. Someone brought her some rotten, kind of rotten bananas one day. No, kind of, no, mushy apples. And at first she was like, gosh, it would have been nice to have a crisp apple. But then she realized that would have made her sick. That what was brought to her was exactly God's provision. Because she was so emaciated, she couldn't have eaten that. And so she was really able, because she had this memorization of, of his scriptures and this knowledge of who God is, exactly what Glenda's saying, that sustained her and held her through that. Yes, Ron, and then we need to stop. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Corey Timbu had the same experience. Scriptures taken, just what she had in her head. Yeah. So immerse yourself in, in God's word. Immerse yourself so that you know it and you have it. What I want to do is uh, I, want, I want to kind of take a look at this because it really does help us. Habakkuk is such a short book, three chapters. Um, it's uh, mostly a poem that describes Habakkuk's frustration and then God's response to it. And so when we look at this, there are some general things that we can clearly learn in regard to uh, uh, we need to believe in God and we need to trust in God and we need to trust in God no matter what. Right? So those things, by the way, all true. But sometimes it's helpful to go, but what's the context of that? It's kind of like it's a good thing to go back and read stories. Um, if you hear about, yeah, there was this young girl and she trusted God no matter what. Oh, that's sweet. What was her name? And you say, um, her name was Anne Frank. That kind of add a context to what she had to go through. So the great hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, Great is Thy Faithfulness, O good my Father. Um, morning by morning, new mercies I see. Okay, do you know the story behind that hymn? That man suffered terribly from chronic pain. And every morning was miserable and painful and difficult. And yet he says what? Morning by morning. I mean, if I were to just say, you know, what kind of person wakes up and goes, oh, what a great day. What a good God. How about somebody with chronic pain? That, that person? So you see how the context really begins to help make shape? So one of, the, one of the statements I want to play off a little bit is just this statement that I want to take from the book of Habakkuk. Three is my favorite chapter. It's kind of where we're going to kind of hold on to some things. But... I love that statement, and the righteous will live by faith. And what's so interesting is, is that in our post-Reformation era that we live in, we say, yeah, it's really good to live by faith and not by what? Sight, that, right? That would be one. But the other one would be we should live by faith and not by our what? Works. 
And what's interesting is, is that's actually not what this text is talking about at all in terms of that faith-slash-work dichotomy. It's not describing, yeah, you know, back in Habakkuk's day, there were a bunch of people that were just being really godly outwardly, but not godly inwardly. And Habakkuk reminds people, you need to live by faith. You need to not trust in your own righteousness. That's not Habakkuk's issue at all. When he says you need to live by faith, he is describing something that is fundamentally deeper and richer than just, oh yeah, we don't want to be like someone who is trusting in legalism. That's not what he's describing. And so that's why setting it up really, I think, will help. So you've got a number of prophets, and and we were kind of going through these dates. So in 722, the Assyrians are ruling the world. The Assyrian Empire is. They fall uh, later on in that that 100-year period. Um, And so in the middle 600s, this new nation rises up from beneath them geographically, Babylon. Um, So they overtake the Assyrians. They destroy the Assyrians. And then they have a war with, uh, with, with Egypt. Uh, Pharaoh Necho, or Necho, um, uh, is at war. So he is, you know, where Egypt is. And then you go up through Israel and then off to the other side around the, 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 uh, the desert through uh, Damascus. And then you have down by the Tigris and the Euphrates, you have the Babylonian Empire. And so they decide to go to war. The Babylonians and the, uh, the uh, Egyptians go to war. And in 605, they meet at the Battle of Carchemish, a very famous war. Um, and in, during this war, by the way, you need to know this part of, of Israel's history, um, there is a particular king that goes up and decides to side with the Egyptians. And who's that? King Josiah. Probably the greatest king in Israel's history. Um, one text actually says he was better than his father David. No one, no one, no one turned to the Lord like this one did. So that is King Josiah. So truly one of the greatest. Probably Josiah and probably Hezekiah uh, and, and, and David, obviously, are probably three of the greatest kings within Israel's history in terms of their love for the Lord. And so you have this king that goes up to side with the Egyptians, and God allows him to be killed. And King Josiah, this great king, dies just prior to the battle at Carchemish. And during the battle of Carchemish, the Babylonians win. And so at 605, which is that critical date, the Babylonians defeat the Egyptians, and the country in between them is Israel. King Josiah, the good king, is killed. His son takes his place. And during 605, you have, I read it on Sunday, you have the first deportation of Jewish youths taken You have the vessels that are taken, not all of them, but a lot of the vessels that are actually taken from the temple, most likely to buy off. Hey, if we give you this, will you go away? Will you pay tribute to us instead? And so it's got to be humbling for a king to pay tribute to somebody else. Now, we know the backstory because we're not going to live by sight. We're going to live by faith. So the real story is who sent the Babylonians to destroy the Egyptians? That would be... Yahweh. And who, by the way, is now using the Babylonians to destroy the nation of Judah? And the answer is Yahweh is doing this. So that's kind of the backstory. And Nancy did a great job saying, 
How well would we stomach that if that were ISIS? How well would we be able to? And that's a great analogy. How well would you like it if every Sunday I stood up and America was a mess, and you all know it's a mess, and I just decided to go off on America every week about how that's why people get shot in Texas, and that's why people get shot in Vegas, and that's why everything is going bad, and that's why we should not cheer for this country. That's why. How many of you would go, I'm kind of tired of this? Anybody? How many of you would just go, like, I'm done. Like, I don't need to hear this, especially from a Canadian. I don't need to hear this. You would, wouldn't you? Like, on it, we, I, I would. It would be so difficult for me to hear that. And by the way, I would even argue, I wouldn't even say it unless God told me to say it. That's, I think, one of the problems that we have with modern-day people, is I want to go up to them and say, like, did God tell you to say that? Because if he did, then I, I can't really fight you. So if what you're saying is, you're not trying to interpret events. The Lord came to you. The Lord God himself appeared to you and said, this is what I want you to say. Say to my people who live in America. And, and is that what you're saying? And they usually go, well, no. It's just kind of me trying to, okay, well, then, then I can then critique your critique of how things are working out. Correct? See, so do, do you realize a little bit of the difference? A little bit of the difference is prophets are being called up to speak. And part of those prophets that are being called up to speak are Jeremiah and Habakkuk and Ezekiel. And so that's a little bit different than just Jim going off and saying, this is my personal assessment of human history. And God saying, Jim, I'm telling you to say this. But truthfully, when God tells me to say something, I really could, I hope, I'm going to do my best to care less what you think. Does that make sense? At that point in time, I won't even care what you think. At least I hope not. But Jeremiah cared deeply. So what I want to do is I want to, so 605, Daniel and the deportation happened. And so kings, there's going to be three of them, Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah. Those are the three kings that are going to come after Josiah. And they come rather quickly. And those three kings begin to play a game. Um... Who is going to be best for us? Who is going to be best to align ourselves with? How do we handle this, 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 this very difficult time? Do we side with the Russians or do we side with the Germans? That's kind of what you're doing. If you're Poland, do, who do we decide to side with? We've got the communists on one side. Who do, the, who do the Finns side with in World War II? I'm kind of reading some stuff in World War II. Like they're trying to figure out if we line with the communists, they're going to do this. If we line with the Germans, they're going to do this. So who do we aside? Who do we line up with? And it, it. By the way, everybody who lined up with the Germans did great from 39 to about 44. It looked like it was a winning choice, and then it really went bad, hit downhill for them after that, and vice versa. Those who sided with the Russians, it looked really, really bad for a while. And then all of a sudden it looked really, really good after that. And then it got bad again, right? So I, you need to kind of sit a, with a little bit of that because if not, you don't understand even the temptation of the two different kinds of prophets. So you have a prophet, and that is someone who is going to speak. I'll put the capital P, who is going to speak on behalf of God. And then you're going to have a prophet. And he is going to speak on behalf of himself. He's going to speak on behalf of the king. He's going to speak on behalf of the nation. Say, you've got prophets, and then you've got prophets. Now, before we just kind of rip on them, and before we kind of continue on with our timeline, I want to ask you a question. 
how many of you surround yourself with people who say things that you don't like to hear, that you don't want to hear, that are really, really hard to hear, that are, I, I mean, honestly, you would call it overly critical of you, overly critical of how you've lived your life, overly critical of almost everything. How many of you love to surround yourself with people like that? How many of you instead have surrounded yourself with people who are encouraging and helpful, who offer you you're pretty and you're smart and you're wonderful and you're going to do well in life? How many of you opt for section two and against section one? Raise your hand if you're a section two person. Yeah. All of us, right? It's all of us. It's... So then here's the question that you have to ask is then, so how do you know whether or not you're actually in the truth or you've just been surrounded by a bunch of people who are lying to you? And, and by the way, when I say lying to you, sometimes it's easy to go, well, they're lying. You know they're lying because they're bad people. How many of you know good liars? Like, I mean, good people who are liars. Yeah. Like, there are good people who lie all the time. They lie all the time. They're self-deceived people. And so they're good. Um, my, my grandmother used to always, you know, she would talk about, she would, she would lie constantly about things about, and when I say lie, meaning it didn't correspond to the truth. It was like true in her own head. Just, it, wasn't, it wasn't the truth. It was a lie. It was a way of looking at the world and a way of looking at things that was not in accordance with the truth. But my grandmother was as sweet as the day is long. Didn't even know she was lying. Didn't even know it. So you need to understand, like, that's the complexity of the time. And so one of the things Jeremiah tries to tell people is, listen, guys, we cannot align ourselves with Egypt. If we align ourselves with Egypt, I know why you want to do it. I know why you want to align yourselves with Egypt, because you actually believe that they can help us. This is actually before 605. You actually think that they can help defeat. And by the way, if you think about it, it's easy to look back and go, how did the Egyptians ever think they could hold off the Babylonians? But we only know that on this side of history. Back then, how would, how would, how would a single person living in Jerusalem know whether or not the Egyptians were more or less powerful than the Babylonians? How would you know that? You would need one of these. And if the Egyptians said they're going to help you, would you not align with them? Especially when the nation to the north of you was completely annihilated by the Assyrians that the Babylonians took over. Like, wouldn't you want to side with? And then all of a sudden, Jeremiah comes along and says, listen, don't try to make any treaties. Why not? Well, because God's going to kill us. And he really says it'll just get worse if we try to stop this. It'll just, it's, it's literally like, son, don't try to grab my hands while I spank you. It'll just make it worse for you. It's still the hardest thing to not do, right? Right, son, just I need you to sit there and I need you to take the spanking. It'll go easier on you. Okay, wait a second. You're about to spank me? Yeah. I can't see any way in which this is good for me. Right? But I don't want you, don't struggle against, I mean, that's what's happening. That's Habakkuk's complaint. That's, Jeremiah's complaint. And so in Jeremiah chapter 20, when he literally is like crying out to God, like, cursed is the one that says my mother was having a son. Um, my life has been terrible from the very beginning. I, I wish I had not been born. Like, I'm sick and tired of telling all of these people all of these bad things that are going to happen. 
Like, I just hate my life. You can understand why he's saying that, can't you? You understand why that's actually happening. So 605, that happens. The next major one is when the nation decides under this king, decides to rebel against. And some, by the way, these kings are like taken away in deportation. <laughs> Babylon says, hey, you, okay, you know, you don't, you know, I, don't, I don't like the way you're ruling. I'm going to pull you out, and I'm going to put your brother in, in, your, in your place. And then he finds out, because he goes back to Babylon, and the brother goes, hey, I think we should rebel against him. What do you think? I don't think we should pay our tribute. And so Nebuchadnezzar comes back. And by the way, guess what his prophets are telling the king, not Nebuchadnezzar. Guess what his prophets are telling him? This time he won't be able to defeat us. God's going to protect us. Wouldn't you want to surround yourself with people like that? So that's what's happening. So in 597, it is known as the Great Siege of Jerusalem. Now, the Great Siege of Jerusalem is 70 AD with Titus Vespasian. But before there was ever a Titus and before there was ever a Roman Empire, there was the Great Siege in 597. And, and, and think about this. When does it finally fall? 586. So you've got a long time to live. And these are the great three dates of the deportation. 605 with Daniel, 597 with Ezekiel. That's when he is removed and he starts his preaching ministry. And then in 586, you just have the destruction of both the city and the temple. And Habakkuk is living in the midst of this. He's, and he's trying to kind of live with this. So here's what I would like to do. Um, I, I want you to actually turn with me in your Bibles. I'm going to be read. Do you mind if I read scripture today? Just less commentary. Um, I've, I'm done a lot of talking already. But let me just read through some really good sections of scripture for you to kind of get a sense of what Habakkuk is going through. Jeremiah chapter 12. And you might want, I don't know if you need to underline these, but I want you to bracket them or something because I think you'll, they'll be helpful for you to go back and look at. Jeremiah chapter 12, this is God's ultimate plan. Now remember, God has a plan that runs deeper than history. So let's just look at text. In Genesis chapter 12, God says, I have um, this desire to bless all the nations through Abraham. And then you have in Exodus 1, I'm going to take you out of this terrible land and I'm going to give you a land. And then you have in Joshua 1, you have here is the land that I've actually promised you. I want you to enjoy it, and I want you to, you know, have it. And then you have in 1 Samuel 8, you have the rise of a king, and they're in the land, and they've got all of these kings. And so God has said, I'm going to bless all the world through you. I'm going to take you up out of Egypt. I'm going to give you a land. Here is a land that you now have. I need you to stay in this land. And although you have kings, I need you to... Rem I need you uh, to remember, these kings can be dangerous things. They can lead you away. If they lead you away, and this actually is said even earlier, um, I will remove you from this land. I will remove you from this place. But ultimately, this is the governing covenant. And I'm going to bless all the world through you. And so the Bible actually warns that it's going to go downhill. But then I'm going to bring you back. And there will be a real king from David who's going to come, and we know his name is Yeshua, Jesus, right? So that's kind of 
But now we've got to try to figure out this is, by the way, these arrows are not equal. This is a long arrow, arrow down and then a rather short arrow up. I mean, actually, it's probably important that I do that accurately. It's literally hundreds of years down and then kind of flat and then up. And I'm going to restore you. So God has this ultimate plan and, and this ultimate purpose. And so here's how it's described in Jeremiah chapter 12. Thus says the Lord concerning all my evil neighbors who touch the heritage that I have given my people Israel to inherit. Be, so he's telling, hey, all you other nations around, I don't want you to be confused as to what's happening. I don't want you to think more of yourselves. I want you to know God loves to say this to both people and nations. You are my puppets. I am the puppet master. So I want all you people who touch my heritage, who touch my inheritance, behold, I will pluck them up from their land, and I will pluck, them, I will pluck up the house of Judah from among them. And after I have plucked them up, I will have compassion on them, and I will bring them again each to his heritage and to each to his land. And it shall come to pass, if they will diligently learn the ways of my people to swear by my name as the Lord lives, even as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then they shall be built up in the midst of my people. But if any nation will not listen, then I will utterly pluck it up and destroy it, declares the Lord. This is a warning he has given, interestingly enough, to the other nations. Saying, listen, here's what I'm doing. If anybody wants to understand what's happening... I'm going to be destroying Judah. If you want to learn along the way, you will actually be blessed. If you decide to go against me, is that not Jeremiah 12? You guys are looking at me like I'm confused. Okay. Oh, did I not give you the text? I apologize. Jeremiah 12, 14 through 17 is where I was. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Some of you were confused and some of you weren't. Jeremiah 12, 14 through 17 is the text. I apologize. I'll try to do better. So I'm going to do this to Judah. If you want to come along for the ride, this is almost like a little bit of a promise of God's gift that he's always been. That's why he loved Rahab, the prostitute, who was not in by any means a descendant of Abraham, but she is actually one of Jesus' great, 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 great grandmothers. Right? It's amazing how God has always had this inclusive mentality to all of the nations. If you will learn like this, if you will understand, if not... I will destroy you, God actually says. So there you even see God has a plan for Judah beyond the destruction, which is, I would argue this, what it means to live by faith is to see beyond the discipline. Um, I never got what my dad was doing. My dad would spank me with his slipper. This leather, and it seemed more floppy than it needed to be. It had kind of a little bit of a whip to it, by the way. Um, and, and to my dad, it's funny because my wife laughs because her mom would come after her with a wooden spoon, which that, that just terrifies me. My mother-in-law with a wooden spoon would terrify me to this day. Um, and and, I, and my, I remember my wife asking me, where did you get spanked? And I went like, well, where's the only place ever, if you're allowed to spank a child, on the hand. That's the only place I've ever been spanked is on the hand. I'm like, where did you get spanked? She said, on my bottom. And I went, you had to pull your pants down? That's just embarrassing. 
So my wife laughs at my father, but he terrified me with that, with that, with that leather slipper. I'm going to give you, and you tell me, I'm going to give you three swats on your hand, and I'd be, you know, I was probably 19 at the time. I'm just terrified <laughs> this is actually happening. But I never understood it. I never, like, it wasn't until I was much older that I understood the value of it. It made no sense to me at the time. It didn't really teach me anything except it was teaching me a lot. I just, it, it took me a while to figure out what was going on. And I would argue any discipline is like that. I just, it, it's hard to understand the value of the discipline during, isn't it? You almost just want to fight against it. And so notice how this whole story within, within um, uh, Jeremiah is going to continue. By the way, I just, I kind of went through the first about 33 chapters of Jeremiah to prepare for this. But you can, you can kind of pick it up in about 10 and, and, and have some fun with it. Jeremiah chapter 21, verse 3 through 10. Jeremiah 21, 3 through 10. This is now the last king. Okay, so we're, we're past this stage. This is King Zedekiah. And so we're getting close to this one here. And Jeremiah is going to be telling the people, do not, do not try to go back to Egypt. That's never been a good idea for us. Do not try to rely on the Egyptians. It's never been a good plan for us. Jeremiah says, Then Jeremiah said to them, this, Thus you shall say to Zedekiah, Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will turn back the weapons of war that are in your hands, and with which you are fighting against the king of Babylon and against the Chaldeans, who are besieging you outside the walls. So this is between the besieging of Jerusalem in 597 and the destruction that's going to come in 586. So we know when this time period is. Everything that you're using to hold him off, I'm going to use against you, and I will bring them together into the midst of this city. I myself will fight against you with an outstretched hand and a strong arm, and in anger and in fury and in great wrath, and I will strike down the inhabitants of this city, both man and beast, they shall die of a great pestilence, which is kind of what would happen when there would be a besieging of a city. If you've ever read Josephus' account of what happened when Vespasian surrounded Jerusalem, like mothers eating their own children, the kind of destruction that happens during a besiege. Think, I mean, I just recently was studying through the besiege of, of Stalingrad. Uh, unbelievably horrific in terms of how bad it gets. When you starve millions of people who are kind of stuck, it gets ugly. And that is kind of one of the descriptions of that pestilence that exists. Afterward, declares the Lord, I will give Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his servants and the people in this city who survived the pestilence, sword, and famine into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of their enemies, into the hand of those who seek their lives. He shall strike them down with the edge of his sword. He shall not pity them or spare them or have compassion. Which, by the way, is what he actually had on previous kings. But not anymore. Like, it's done. Other kings were taken away and then even allowed to come back. Kind of like those, it doesn't always bother you when those terrible dictators in some country goes, oh, we'll take him and we'll give him a palace and we'll let him kind of live really nice lives, which, by the way, America does that sometimes too. And you're like, seriously, you're letting that guy get off? The guy was a terrible person. Yeah, but, you know, he's a king, and so we need to at least let him live like a king, even though he's a terrible king. 
And it's like, no, that's not the way it is. Verse 8, and to this people you shall say, thus said the Lord, behold, I set before you. This is, where does this sound like? I set before you a way of life and a way of death. Where does that sound like? What's that reminiscent of? Death. Deuteronomy and Joshua. It's the kind of the, the, the giving of God's instruction. I set before you today a way of life and a way of death. Now, this, by the way, is also going to be a little bit different. This isn't the kind of life and death, and I'm going to give you this commandment, and you should follow it and teach it to your children. That's not this. Look at how it unfolds. He who stays in the city will die by the sword, by famine, by pestilence. But he who goes out and surrenders to the Chaldeans who are besieging it, you shall live and shall have his life as a prize of war. By the way, what do you call people if um, we're being attacked by ISIS and I just decide, because God told me to, that I should go surrender to them and kind of help them in the cause? What do you call me? Not good? So do you realize what he's asking? He's asking them to be traitors. To be traitor, by the way, I want you to think about this, but to be traitor against someone who is opposing God is to be on the side of God. You understand that? This is where this can actually be a rather healthy lesson for those of us living in America today. Your greatest loyalty is to who? God. Greatest loyalty, right? Your great, of all the loyalties that exist, your greatest loyalty is to who? And the answer is God. See, and, and I would argue, and this is what's very fascinating, I mean, it's, it's outside of the scope for today, but like those make the best citizens, Justin Martyr would say to the Roman Empire. Like we, we actually make the best citizens. So the times are a little bit different, by the way. That's why I would even tell you to, to be careful it doesn't mean we oppose nations. I mean, because Daniel does what? He serves the king. So Daniel seems to enjoy serving the king. But when the king decides to go against God, the greater loyalty is to who? Is to God. So when God tells you to leave the city, and everyone else is going to call you a traitor, but God tells you to leave the city, what do Christian people do? We leave the city. Which, by the way, means that you are going to need, when you're trying to figure out culture, you're going to need discernment to know this from this. You're really going to need this. You're going to need a level of discernment to check out who is the one that's telling me. Because that's a, it's a complicated thing. I don't want to be labeled a traitor falsely. So I've got to not only know, I mean, if it... If, if, do you think it was harder for them to tell which one was the false prophet from which one was the true prophet? How do we know? Why do you think it's such a big deal in the Bible? What do you do with false prophets? You stone them. Why? Because they are eternally damaging, and they're also damaging. Are they not? The false prophets are what created this. Therefore, what is needed? discernment. And you'll see how this is actually going to play out. I think you're going to love some of these Jeremiah things. So notice, I want you to go out. Why? Because verse 10, for I have set my face against this city for harm and not for good, declares the Lord. Notice that phrase. I have decided, I'm, I'm, God is what? He is for harm and not for good, <laughs> declares the Lord. It shall be given into the hand of the king of Babylon and he will burn it with fire. Now, jump over to Jer Jeremiah chapter 23. 
this kind of helps us understand with the prophets how to know small P's from capital P's. Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 16 and 17. This is another one to, to bracket and to go back and to take a look at its context. Context. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. And, and again, I, I think this is an important point of application. What we need to be doing today, and, and I say that because everybody should always be doing it for all human history, is that we need to be able to ask when someone is trying to build me up, is this a vain hope? Is what you're trying to do, of give me, is it a vain hope? And there's a danger in vain hope. And so what is, do not listen to the words of people who are trying to fill you with vain hope. They speak of visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it will be well with you. I keep coming back to this. To affirm someone's salvation who is not saved. Now again, I'm not trying to say I know all the people who are saved or not saved. That's, hear me. You get to figure out the application of this. To affirm the salvation of someone who is not saved is to affirm their damnation. You understand that? To say to someone who is not in favor with God, you're good, you're good, is to literally to seal the fate of their damnation. By the way, it's also bad to condemn people who God has approved. So it's not like, it's not like yeah, so, you know, why don't we just condemn everybody and then we can, no, that's, no, that's not good either. But to affirm the condemned in their, kind of, their safety is ridiculous. And so it's always funny how we, we, we love to err on the side of being affirming. Um, like, why would we do that? Like, that just doesn't make sense to me. How would you like it if, hey, I got a doctor in town, and no matter what you have, he's going to say you're fine. Like, no matter what. He, I had this friend, they had, like, stage, stage two, so it wasn't really bad, but stage two cancer, and he said it was nothing. And, I mean, honestly, and they, they lived, you know, only six months more, but, I mean, it was crazy. But it was awesome. At least they never went through chemotherapy. They never actually had to do anything. They just died this really bad death. But they never heard it's bad. They always heard it's fine. How many of you would go, that's my kind of doctor? Think about it, though. Like, and I, I, here's what I want you to, like, who do you surround yourself with? Do you surround yourself with those kinds of doctors? Do you surround yourself with those kinds of people? So it becomes a very dangerous thing. Look at this. It is going to be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart. <laughs> I love this. To everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come to you. Their patron saint is Neville Chamberlain. Some of you will get that joke. Peace in our time. So do you understand the complexity of this? So Habakkuk, in this time is 
Now hear me, Habakkuk knows what he is, so I'm not going Habakkuk's trying to figure out what he is. But the people are trying to understand Habakkuk. There's this dividing line. Habakkuk is clearly on this side of the line. But he's got this difficult message to say, and it's in the context, and everybody else is saying everything is good. There are times, Ryan and Vincent and I have kind of shared this, there are times where I kind of just wish I could be that person. It doesn't last long. But I kind of wish I could just be the person that just only has, like, just the most flowery things to say. And I, but I, I literally, I cannot bring myself to do it. I cannot. I don't have it in me. I almost never have had it in me. It's like I can't let things go. And by the way, that doesn't mean I always get it right. I, I get it wrong. So I, get it, I get it right, and I do it wrong sometimes. Does that make sense? So it doesn't ever give me a pass. But I don't, I don't know what you are, but there are some people that just can't be anything but encouraging. And can I just say to you, woe to you. If all you can be is that, quote, unquote, if all you can be is encouraging, um, and I say that in more of the loosely defined concept, like, woe to you. You will raise weak children. You will exist in weak relationships. You will have a weak, pathetic marriage. Um, but don't worry. In the end, you'll die and go to hell. So that's the upside. It's the host of the downsides. Two more texts from Jeremiah, and I'll be done. Jeremiah chapter 27, verses 19 through 22. 27, 29, not, sorry, 19 through 22. For thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the pillars, the sea, the stands, and the rest of the vessels that are left in the city. So remember how they took a bunch of the stuff here? Okay you're going to see that they're taking the rest of it now. They were bought off with some. They're coming back to pillage the rest. And so here are the things that are still in the city, which Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, did not take when he went into exile, from, when he took into exile from Jerusalem uh, to Babylon, Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, the son of Judah, and all the nobles of Judah and Jerusalem, and you could even add like Daniel and blah, blah, blah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning the vessels that are left in the house of the Lord, in the house of the king of Judah and in Jerusalem, they shall be carried to Babylon and remain there until the day when I visit them, declares the Lord. Then I will bring them back and restore them to this place. So just because you have some things that make it look like everything is fine, that make it look like the temple's not going to go down, he came and then he left, you have not listened to me, and he is coming back, and he is going to finish it. And they're holding on to the vessels that they have. Well, there's still hope. There's still hope. And by the way, who's saying there's still hope? Who's saying there's no hope? Jeremiah 27. Last one, Jeremiah chapter 28. This is one of my favorite ones. Um, to set this up, what, what Jeremiah does, he's one of these guys that likes to reenact things. He puts himself in like stocks, okay, that they would, they would put like particularly the nobles in. Um, so he's kind of like in like a, he's, he's not stuck, so he's able to move around, but he's in like a yoke that you would use for an animal. He's like a slave. And he's walking around like this. Why? This is what's going to happen to you, just in case you're wondering. He's coming. And I know you are trusting on the Egyptians. I know that you're hoping that the vessels are going to stay here. But listen, this is what's going to happen to you. And you need to know that. 
And Hananiah is actually going to come in. And you know what Hananiah does? He breaks the yoke off of Jeremiah and he destroys it. What a great guy. Isn't that awesome? He freed Jeremiah from his yoke. But who told him to put the yoke on? God. So, by the way, to remove a yoke that God has put on someone, woe to you. To free someone from something God has assigned them to, woe to you. Hananiah, the son of Azur, the prophet from Gibeon, so he is a prophet, spoke to me in the house of the Lord. This is Jeremiah speaking. So he comes up into the house of the Lord, and Hananiah's got something to say. In the presence of the priests and of all the people, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts. By the way, anybody can say that. Thus saith the Lord of hosts. This is Hananiah speaking, talking to Jeremiah. The God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years I will bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house which King Nebuchadnezzar, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. I will also bring back to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, and all of the exiles from Judah who went into Babylon, declares the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Amen. Amen. What's, isn't it the last verse? What's the last verse of Jeremiah 28? Isn't it the last verse? What does it say? Hananiah died. <laughs> By the way, Jeremiah comes in after him. I don't have time to go through it all. But Jeremiah comes in after him. And you remember what Jeremiah says? Jeremiah says, hey, listen, honestly, dude, like if that's true, that's awesome. It's not true. And I want you to remember this. And Jeremiah kind of points out, like, listen, when, when this happens, but Hananiah doesn't even see it, God takes him. So that is the context of Habakkuk. And so Habakkuk says, and the righteous will live by faith. So what does that mean? What does that mean? Think about, it, think about it this way, and I, it was really kind of fun to kind of deal a little bit with the timeline in Nancy's half. So in Habakkuk 3, he concludes by saying this, and this is kind of interesting. For Habakkuk's first complaint is, God, why aren't you doing anything about all these bad people? Like his people, right? Like, God, why are you allowing there to be all these bad things that happen in America? How many of you have complained about all the bad things that are happening in America, right? All the terrible things, racism, sexism, sex trafficking, drugs, uh, murder, right? How many of you hate all the bad things? And God says, you're right, Jim. I'm coming, and I'm going to kill everybody. Whoa, 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 whoa. Easy, easy, easy. That was a little overkill, wasn't it? So Habakkuk's first complaint is, why don't you do anything? God says, well, I am doing something. And then his second complaint is, well, why are you doing that? Which I find fascinating. That's kind of how we are with God. We're complaining that he doesn't do anything, and then when he finally does something, we complain about that. It's just the way that we are. So he'll look at, at, at Habakkuk 3, and I want to kind of hold into um, verse, I want to start at verse 14. He is describing, by the way, um, like the destruction of the Babylonians. So Habakkuk is going to see beyond this destruction of Jerusalem. Verse 14, you pierced with your own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me. So that's the Babylonians he's talking about. Rejoicing as if it devours the poor in secret, you trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. So he's kind of ending 
what God's destruction of the Babylonians is going to be. Then he says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. And yet I will live by faith. By faith in what? Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. It's like, God, I don't get what you're doing. I don't understand what you're doing, it, but I will live by faith. I will live by your word. I will live by something that stands deeper and more profound than anything that I could understand. I live by what the capital P prophet says, and I, don't, I will not live by what seems like what's best for me. I'm going to trust a complete way of living that makes my life hard. And that's difficult for me, because I don't know if you know me, I'm very much like water and electricity, always looking for the path of least resistance. That's who I am. And yet to live by faith, actually, doesn't mean not by works. It means not following the path of least resistance. It means seeing something that is far more profound, that is far more deep, that is far more difficult. So verse 17, and I know we were trying to find some, some, some accurate ones, where, where it really is kind of lost in us a little bit, is that these are the promises that God gave of his presence. These are the promises from Deuteronomy. And so it hurts him to say this. Because God, it looks like you're abandoning us, and even when it looks like you're abandoning us, I know you're not, because I live by faith. Even when it looks like this is the absolute wrong, I know that it's right because I will live by faith. Even though all of my friends, I'm not going to do that because you know what? I'm going to live by, that's what it means to live by faith. Do you know that? That's what it means. To live by faith is lonely. To live by faith is hard. To live by faith will involve usually mocking and ridiculing. That's why the Bible loves to teach. Beware when men speak. My dad used to always say this to me because he knew how badly I like to be popular. And my dad would just always say, be, be very careful, son, when, 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 when others speak well of you. Be very careful when people speak well of you. You, just, you don't want that. You don't want people to speak well of you all the time. That just seemed crazy to me. Why wouldn't I want people to speak well of me? I mean, I said, well, it's not that. You want good people to speak well of you. Like you want like noble people. You want, you want Genevieve to speak well of you, right? You want Genevieve to speak well of you. But I don't want everybody to speak well of me. What Habakkuk is trying to understand is, is like when you are an enemy of God, then you need to be an enemy of me. And that's what the prophet is, is struggling with. So he says what? Though the fig tree should not blossom, the fruit of the vine, the, uh, the, the produce of the oil, of the, of the olive will fail. The, yield, the fields will yield no fruit. The flock be cut off from its fold. There be no herd in the stalls. I will still rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord is my God. The Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. I will wait upon the Lord, and he is the one that will give me strength. So let me close with this, and I I don't have time to read it. It is in that context, by the way, that Jeremiah chapter 29 
verse 11, comes to bear. The oh-so-misquoted text of the Bible. Maybe the worst ever. Because Jeremiah 29, 11 says what? I know the plans I have for you. Plans to bless you and not to harm you. Plans to... Do you know what the context is of Jeremiah 29? Is I want you to go to Babylon, and I want you to know you're going to die there. And I want you to be happy about that. And I want you to recognize that I have a plan that you will not really get to be a part of. And I want you to go into exile, and I want you to pray for that city, and I want you to be a blessing to that city. I want you to marry there. I don't want you to sit in your room and pout and ask me every five minutes, when can I come out? Can I come out now? Can I come out now? Can I come out now? No, I want you to go in your room and act like you like it. I want you to be in your room and go, this is my favorite place in the world. Why? Because this is where my dad sent me so that I can learn to be a good son. That's Jeremiah 29, 11. Because God knows the plans that he has. And so if you ever quote Jeremiah 29, 11, make sure you go through Habakkuk to do it. Right? If you ever want to quote that verse, make sure you go through Habakkuk to get there. Because God's plans are truly great. But I don't say this lightly. They are for his glory. They are for our refinement. And you aren't refined when you find these in your life. When you surround yourself with these, you're never refined. You guys need some, you guys need some really good godly, uh, I do, some really good, I married one actually. <laughs> some, some people that are willing to speak the most painful, difficult truths because they love you, but they love God more. Let's pray. God, thank you. For people like Jeremiah and Habakkuk, thank you for um, just the reminder that when Habakkuk says to live by faith, the righteous, they live by faith. It doesn't mean they live by great thoughts or they live by Hallmark cards or they live by, you know, encouraging tweets or uh, really sweet Facebook posts. But they live by faith. And to live by faith is to endure hard times faithfully. And God, we are waiting for a Savior to come from heaven to take us home. And we live in a world that opposes everything that we hold dear. Forgive us for hearing and enjoying the sweet lullabies of false prophets. And may we learn to love and appreciate and obey the strong, forceful words that come from your word, that come from our modern-day prophets. Thank you, God, for not leaving us abandoned, but giving us the Holy Spirit. And may we be able to discern the times in which we live so that we can, just like the Habakkuk the prophet and Jeremiah before him, that we can faithfully endure. It's in Jesus' name we humbly pray. Amen.